0: Hey, welcome. This is Pastor Tyler Whitcomb. I just want to say on behalf of the leadership of FOS Church, we are so glad that you're checking out the FOS Church podcast. At FOS, we believe in the authority of God's word and the ability it has through the power of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts of mankind and to mold and shape its readers into the image of Christ. And so we pray that these messages would do just that, that you would hear God's word and be changed by it. Lastly, our encouragement is, if you do not belong to a local Bible-believing church, that you would do so, because a podcast will never allow you to serve the purpose that God has called you into belonging to the church. Um, good morning, church. Uh, Karen, do you have those bandages? Um, if you were here last week, that's how the message started. Uh, I had cut my finger um, on a pocket knife that was in my pocket, and I thought I was going to be good until I was reading the scripture and I could actually feel the blood flowing down my hand. So uh, we spent some time there, but probably none of you remembered that. Um, there was other things that happened, and uh, thankfully, praise God that uh, Roger Jackson's here with us this morning. Um, and Um, We all, you know, we saw that a medical emergency last Sunday, and I said I was going to be giving an emailed update uh, Sunday, and it did not come. There was not much to update on at that moment. Um, However, there is more information now in regards to uh, what maybe the exact cause was, and um, more in regards to a stint that was put in years ago uh, that may need some work. But if you want more information, Roger, Carolyn, I'm sure, would be glad to provide that, but um, they did write a note that they wanted the church to be able to hear. So this is for uh, the folks congregation from Roger. My wife and I would like to say a big thank you for the, uh, for the past um, and, uh, efficient and helpful way the church responded to my medical emergency this past Sunday. We would also want to say thank you for all the telephone calls to keep up with my condition. The prayers this past week, while going through troublesome times, and the offers to supply groceries and food for us, this was all appreciated, Um, and as well as uh, signed, your friends in Christ, Roger and Carolyn, Merry Christmas to all. So um, they're very appreciative of your guys' prayers and how everything happened last week, and it was just a, a cool family moment for us to be able to pray. Not cool because of what happened, um, but just to be able to pause and say, no, no, we're going we're to practice what we preach. We believe prayer matters. We believe prayer does things. We believe we have not because we ask not. And so we, we step forward in prayer. Um, and so we're just blessed to be able to have Roger and Carolyn with us this morning. Um, now we're going to be jumping back into our series, Living Hope. We are... Week seven, which um, the series always come and go way too quick for me. I feel like I just start getting comfortable and used to the, the book, and then it's like, okay, we're wrapping up. So, uh, but week seven is is today, and so we have three more weeks following. Uh, but so far, you know, we have covered the idea that there's really three main themes um, Peter's covering in in First Peter. And that's that we've been called to a living hope as Christians. As Christians, we have a hope that no one else really gets to experience that's unique to having life in Jesus. And then he moves and he says, well, that, that ought to be reflected in the way you live. Steward your life a certain way. And so we saw that, you know, in, in the call to be submissive to your governing authorities and to be uh, different in the way you live at home. And, and so it wasn't just out in the world, but it was also at home and, and so we began seeing you know, the, the Christian life is different. Uh, and then the, today, this morning, we're transitioning to the third great theme of the book. It's eternal hope. Um, eternal, eternal glory. And, and I love how stewarding your life is sandwiched in between living hope and eternal glory. Because w- w- what's, what's the reason? Your life should be stewarded a certain way. Well, I have a, I have hope in Jesus, right? And then another reason to to steward your life well is this is momentary. There's something eternal. We live this way not for the temporary, but for the eternal. And, and so that that's kind of these last few weeks. They, those got sandwiched in between um, living hope and eternal glory. Um, and so because this. This message of Jesus, we don't have a ton of time to, in our life, to spread it. I think that's what we'll see in our text today. But that there's not a lot of time in this world. When it goes by quick, I'm sure when you celebrate your birthday, right, you just realize, wow, that year went by quickly. And so how do you, if, if, if time is short... How would you reflect this living hope? Well, Peter covers this in our text today. But um, speaking of time being short, Christmas is next Sunday. Are we aware of this? Am I the only one not ready? Um, Actually, I'm more ready than I've ever been. Um, I'm married now, so it's it's not necessarily me. It's... um, Now, I'm going to let you in on something. I am like the worst at getting Christmas presents done on time. Um, Every year, it gets procrastinated. It gets pushed off. And then I have like this internal dialogue with myself. Like, do you really want to go out shopping right now, knowing that these stores are madhouses? Right? Like, we had to pick something up on um, Black Friday at Somerset Mall. Like, I should have come strapped, bulletproof vests. Like I mean it was it's a it's like a war zone there. And and so I'm like, why on earth does anybody in the right mind say, I'm gonna get up early and go out into this mess? Like, no, like now there's less and less of excuse on being late on your presence with things like Amazon. Right? Two day shipping. <laughs> you you mean you really have up until by the twenty first to get away with it. Um but Uh, I I remember one year vividly I was super behind Uh, most of the things happened on the 21st, 22nd, 23rd the only person I did not get for was my father and it was Christmas Eve and we were going over to his side of the families and so I thought surely somebody's going to give me something that I could re-gift to him (laughs) the next day and they didn't nothing was really like my dad you know so it was like okay i left i'm like driving around metro detroit at 11 o'clock on christmas eve only things are open is the catholic church and so um you know hopefully you don't get behind the line getting in you know but uh i'm i'm looking around everywhere i can't can't find anything so that year we settled with a 7-eleven gift card um (laughs) I was tempted to not tell you my new trade secret. As long as we can all promise that it stays in this room. Can I just get an amen if we agree? Amen. Okay, I'm going to let you in on this. And and I'll know if if this gets out. So here's here's a trade secret. You ready for this? Speedway is open on Christmas Day. And Speedway has many more gift cards than just a Speedway gift card. Like, you should gander over, next time you're in Speedway, gander over to their, their gift card selection. It's, it's extensive. And so, I'm gonna know if you all let the secret out, if there's a line at my local Speedway next Sunday. Um, and if there is, church discipline's getting handed out left and right. Like, we're, we're not playing around here. So, um, that was a really roundabout way of telling you. Uh, that the day sneaks up on a lot of people. It comes really, really quick. And for whatever reason, every year it's a shock that it comes up really, really quick. And I think that's a lot about life too. Right? If, if we're all honest, I mean, you could be in here, you could be 15, you could be 30, you could be 50, 80, 90. But I'm sure all of us could say, I'm surprised I'm already this old. Right? Like, Like I can, I, this week as I was writing that, I was having a vivid memory of um, in my in my uh, living room. uh, Growing up, we had this couch, this old couch, and then uh, this chest, and we you could take a blanket over it and you could stuff it down with pillows, and you had like a living room fort. And um, Rugrats Christmas Special was on the TV. Like I know we're Christians, and some people don't like Rugrats, but it's it's whatever we're going with it. Um, Saved by Grace. And, in, and and all that, I, I think, man, that, viv- that memory was so vivid to me as I was thinking about it, but I was probably, I was probably over 20 years ago, and, and, and it's such a small thing to remember, but it, it's, it just seems like you, you blink, and then you, you're married, and, and you have a career, and it all goes by really, really quick, and I'm sure some of you that are old, much older are thinking, shut up, you're 28, you don't know what you're talking about. But I'm sure you validate the same claim. I can't believe I'm already this old. Life happens so, so quick. And, and, and when, when Peter's writing, man, life does go by quick. There's, a, there's an old adage that says, here today, gone tomorrow. Anybody, you hear that? Those verbiage before? I, I want to tell you why that's not biblical. I want to tell you why that's not biblical. we're going to look at James 4, verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Look at what James says. He says, some of you talk about tomorrow like it's guaranteed. And then he follows up. Here's why you shouldn't. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time. He's talking about the morning dew on the grass that's here at breakfast and gone by lunch. You think you have tomorrow, you think it's guaranteed. Well, well, life is a lot shorter than that. It's going to go by much quicker than that. Don't think you have all the time in the world. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And that's what Peter's getting after in our text this morning, that in light of the suffering that we've been talking about these last few weeks, right, suffering in the world, suffering in your workplace, suffering in the home, you know, we all have the story, like, I mean, if you knew what was happening in my life, you know it's not all well and good, and Peter's saying this morning, don't miss it. Don't miss it because we're all tempted to miss it. We're all tempted to let life go by and, and we miss out on what God's actually doing through it all, through this suffering. So last week we talked about stewarding your suffering well um, because there's a purpose in it, right? Like, and, then he, and, and he pointed to Jesus. and that Jesus redeemed humanity through suffering. But we get to show the hope that we have in this time. It might be short, and so uh, today we're going to see in our text just some ideas that if we really want to not just steward our suffering well, but do it well in the time that we have, um, then it's going to require some things. It's going to require the way we think, the the mind that we put on, the worldview that we look out of, because we all have a worldview. We have a worldview and, and it dictates how, how we act. It dictates how we live. And, and, and here this morning, Peter is going to say, hey, the reason why you don't want to miss it or the reason why, because yes, time is short, but like in that, it's like you have a worldview for a short time. And if time is short, then you need to have the proper worldview or else this is going to get really messy really quickly. And so I want Peter, uh, just to see from Peter, how we can have some takeaways about showing and living our lives well, even though they may be short. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, starting verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so again, if you were here last week stewarding your life well, and, and Jesus died for the ungodly, and, and he justified the, the unjustified, right? And so we, we you see how Jesus stewarded his suffering. So he's continuing now, because you see the first word is since. He's tying the last thought to this thought. He's tying them together, that Jesus' suffering accomplished something good. And if Christ also suffered in the flesh, okay, since since Christ suffered well, here's what you should do in in response, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Did you know that there was a way Christ was thinking in the midst of his suffering? Did you know that Christ was thinking about his suffering before the suffering actually took place? That he came into the, what, what he was going to go through and what he was going to accomplish, he had a mindset. This is in um, the Gospel of Mark. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. I love that Peter is referencing Christ having this frame of mind while he's suffering. And he's with Christ, you know, in these last final moments. He gets to see Christ in these moments. And he took with them Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubles, and said to them, my soul is very sorrowful Even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And I share this passage because, again, we're talking about Christ having a frame of mind, a frame of thinking as he was approaching his suffering. Do do we see that in the text? Mark 14 Verse 32 through 36, he, he, he talks about Peter's referencing that moment where, where Christ had a way of thinking. He was going into the garden, and, and, and he was in the garden of Gethsemane. And he said, come with me, I want you to but he shares with him, my soul is very troubled to the point of death. He knows what's, what's about to happen. It, it, I mean, it's just this tormenting thought in the moments of, that he knows he's going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. And you know he knows that because he asked for it to be removed from him. Right? He says, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Hey, I, I know what you're going to do. I know what's about to happen. And if we can do it another way, I'm signing up for that route. Because I know how bad this is going to be. And yet he says, yet yeah, not what I will, but what you will. And so I've never wanted to separate those two things and make them mutually exclusive. I want you to be able to see that it's actually possible to be honest and have a heartfelt concern and share that with God like hey if there be any other way let this pass from me that's just my honest the honest expression of my heart in this moment is I don't want to do this yet not what I will but you will you can live in glad submission to God and still want something else you can live in glad submission to God and still say I would choose something different for myself Jesus in that moment, right, he has this mind where I know I'm about to go and suffer, but my obedience to the Father is more important than what I want. Right, there are several things in my life that I would make, I would choose things different than the way that God has aligned them to be and to work. And yet my preferences are not more important than my obedience to Christ. Your preferences are not more important than your obedience to Christ. <sighs> And it's in Galatians 4 where we see that we've been given the ability to actually accomplish this. We covered this a little bit last week. But when Paul, in the, in the book of Galatians, he writes the entirety of that letter in Greek. And then two words he writes in the Aramaic. And he puts quotes on them in Galatians chapter 4. But he says, when, when you've received adoption as sons, then that, ho- that same spirit that was in Christ that cried out, Abba, Father. Those two words are in Aramaic quoting Christ, the only time Christ said that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he quotes in that moment that, that Abba, Father, that Christ was living in total submission to the Father. Like your ability to live in obedience to Christ was, and to God was purchased for you by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you, it now gave you the power to live in obedience to God. And so he says, hey, shoot. I mean, have that same mindset that Christ had, right? Where Christ knew he was going to suffer. He knew he was going to go to the cross. He knew he was going to drink the cup of God's wrath, and he chose it. And so that's what, what, what Peter just finishes saying to the, the suffering church. He says, you need to have the same mind as Christ in the midst of suffering. So A, you need to know that it's coming for you, and B, that I'm going to be obedient to Christ no matter what happens. That's a wild statement, but it is really this idea that Christians, when we come to Jesus, we place our stake in the ground, and we say, come whatever may, we're in for Jesus. We don't back out of this just because it gets hard. It's kind of a lot like a marital vow, which is crazy to think about, because guess what? The whole Bible is this, picture that's getting towards a wedding in Revelation 22, that God wants union with his bride, the bride of Christ, the church, and so that the church really ought to emulate a marital vow with God, that we say, come whatever may, we're in, we're not leaving. Right? you ever been to those weddings when you hear those vows for rich or for poor? Guess what? You're not making that vow because you're willing to stay if it gets awesome. Like hey, if we get really really loaded, I'm not leaving this thing. Hey, if we both get like chiseled six packs and we're just like running marathons all the time, I'm not leaving. No, you don't you don't make the vow for that purpose. You make the vow if everything goes bad. And if we lose everything, if we lose the house and we lose our savings, I'm not going anywhere. If you get sick, if I get sick, I'm not going anywhere. That's why you make the vow. And we ought to with that same mindset, I'm not going anywhere if this gets hard. If I, if I sign up for Jesus thinking that all I was gonna get was my wildest dreams, free lunch, free healthcare, then, then when those things don't come, it's gonna be really easy to leave. Or when you get sick and things get hard and, and loss happens and pain comes into the world, because none of us are, are, are immune to it. None of us are immune to the, the, the you, we could all wake up tomorrow with a phone call that just shatters your world. It could happen, you could wake up, you could have a weird pain. You go to the doctor and it reveals something a lot more serious. And I share that, and I share that because you do life long enough with people and you start realizing that life kicks people in the soul sometimes. And it gets hard. And so what are you gonna, what's that hope you're holding on to? What's that hope you're radiating to the world? Because I'm telling you, Jesus is enough. Right? Suffering is going to come, but Jesus will always be enough. Come whatever may, my stake's in the ground. I'm not going where I have the same mind that Jesus I'm going to live in obedience to God no matter what. And how prophetic for Peter. This is coming at 53, 54 A.D., It's not as wild as as it's gonna be. In the next few decades, things are gonna get increasingly more hostile, more difficult, more gruesome for Christians. Nobody's getting thrown to lions yet. Nobody's getting sawn in two yet. Nobody's getting burned at the stake yet. And yet all that's gonna come. And he's saying, you put your stake in the ground, come whatever may, I'm obedient to God, I'm obedient to Jesus. This is coming from the same guy that's going to become, he's going to get crucified upside down by that government, that Roman government. And yet he's saying, always have this mind of Christ when you're going through suffering. You're going to have to, A, know that it's going to come because it's it's not a shock and it's not random. And Jesus will always be good. Suffering isn't random and it's not unique And Jesus will always be good. Let's pick back up in verse three. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. And so if we look at those first couple verses that we just got done talking about, you know, have this mind of Christ when you're going into the midst of suffering. He says that because guess what? There's a contrast. There's a way the the world has a mindset. The world lives by an ideology and a worldview. And and so do Christ followers. So does Jesus. And so now he's going to give you The kind of the side-by-side. He's going to maybe let you look at both worldviews next to each other and kind of say, hey, okay, how are you going to go through suffering? If if we have a short amount of time here and life isn't forever here, what worldview are you going to put on in the middle of this short span of time? And so he gives us these side-by-side. And here he says, here's how the Gentiles live. They give into to sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Essentially what he's getting after is they truly embody hedonism. Hedonism is the idea that, you you know, pleasure is the ultimate pursuit of life. To be happy is the pursuit of life. Uh, there's actually a book called Desiring God all about Christian hedonism. And, and it's really about how God is most glorified um, when we're most satisfied in him, right? And so really this... this Christian mindset, this Christian worldview, isn't that we're void of happiness and joy, but it's that we find it in something different. Um, And so Peter says, these Gentiles, they live in in true hedonism where, where the goal and what they want is pleasure on demand, and the goal of life is to just be happy. Sensuality, pleasures, drunkenness, orgies, all these things. He says, really, it's just this idea of like, I'm going to consume whatever makes me happy, whatever makes me feel good, and if that's the goal, If that's the goal of life, to just be happy, that sounds miserable to me. Not to say that I want sad days or hard days or difficult days, I'm not saying I I want those or welcome those by any means, but if, if I'm thinking that every day only matters or the purpose of it is just for me to be happy, then man, I put a weight on myself that he can't bear. He can't hold up because guess how fleeting pleasure is? It's so quick. It's gone so quickly. That high has gone so quickly. And then we're on to the next thing, and it's just this rat race of trying to make me happy. Right? It's like getting on a treadmill. You run and you exhaust yourself, but you didn't go anywhere. And I think really, if you really were to truly embody hedonism, it would feel much like that. Where I give all my energy and all my efforts to feeling good, only to see how quickly feeling good goes away how quickly and how fragile humanity really is it doesn't take much for you to have a bad day it doesn't take much for you to get annoyed and frustrated right I mean let somebody cut you off on the way home how happy are you going to be when you find out that your boss is calling you to stay come in early or stay late to get this project done by this time and you think there is no way no how will I be able to actually do that or somebody criticizes you, God forbid. How easy is it for you to not be happy? It's really easy. Really, really easy. Humanity is very fragile. And so really the, the, this idea of truly embodying hedonism is, is the impossible task. And then he says in verse four, there is a reality. He's telling them about a reality in verse four that when you don't, when you don't participate, it produces animosity. Right, so they're shocked when you don't join in. They're shocked when you don't see the worldview the way they see it. Um, the last several decades, there was this notion or this belief that we saw in, in our Western culture here that you believe what you believe, and I'm gonna believe what I believe, and we just never cross this line. Right, you saw that really take place uh, in the schools and in the workplace. Right, you don't talk about what, what, what two things do we not talk about at work? Politics and religion, right? Like we all know that. That's been ingrained. You just don't cross that line because you cross that line, you know, you're gonna find out real quickly that we don't wanna go there, right? Don't, don't, don't step on what I believe. But just in the last few years, what we've been seeing is that there's a blurring, a blurring of that line in the sense that it's not just okay to believe what you believe anymore. It's now there's a, a push to believe what we believe. What maybe culture, mainstream media, you know. And, and, and you maybe say, okay, are you, are you just saying, are you just coming out of thin air? How much stuff got censored on social media? It ain't political, I'm just being honest. Whether whether it's your side or not your side, you can scroll and you can see things that pop up and say fact check. We're not. We're, this is censored information. Uh, how much of that did you see on social media? That was quite. At least on my feed, it was quite often. Who cares if that's true or not true? This is about any information. But who cares if it's true or not true? Isn't it, hasn't the notion always been you believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe? Oh no, you you can't believe this anymore. You know, you have to believe what, what we're telling you. So we're seeing this, this push, this thing happening. And, and, and this isn't new. It's actually really not a new concept. Right? Where, where Peter says right here in verse 4 that when you don't participate in their worldview and the way they see things, they're going to malign you, they're going to persecute you. you know, that will happen. And he says, but don't worry. The reason you need not worry, why? Because there's a judge watching who's ready to judge both the living and the dead. Right, and so he encourages them why you don't have to repay evil for evil because God will deal with them. God will deal with that way of thinking. And when it's all said and done, God will even every score. You and I, we can take confidence of that. There will not be one score that wasn't evened out at the end. You could be judged wrongly by man. Ultimately, God will fix all things. And so Peter contrasts the way of the world's thinking, and then he gives you the way of Jesus. Verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. The 90s band REM might have been onto something when they said, it's the end of the world as we know it. Some of you are saying, stop singing secular songs. Um, but Peter here says, no, the, the, the end, you know, the end of all things is at hand. The last days are upon us. Well, is Peter right or wrong because he, the Lord didn't come back in his lifetime? Well, um, he just said at hand or soon. So he's not necessarily wrong in saying what he said. Um, and, and almost all Christians, throughout times and cultures have believed that the Lord was going to come back in their time. Um, and so here, you know, he's not wrong in saying that the Lord, the Lord's at hand. The end of all things is near. Why? Because um, I believe we're in the last days. You know, not, not in some weird, spooky, you know, left behind kind of way. I'm just saying uh, the end of all things is at, at hand was ushered in when Jesus ascended back into heaven. That now... This moment of history, what we are is we're waiting for Christ to return. Um, and so, you know, the New Testament writers, Paul, Peter, they all believe the, the last days were upon them. And so if they were in the last days, certainly we are. Uh, and so, Peter says, the end of all things at hand. Right again, there's, there's not much time. He's, he's giving this level of urgency that I think is a lost thing within our society. Well, like, like do we realize that this is not forever? Because I think some, sometimes we can live in a way people live in, in, in such a way that death isn't a reality, that eternity isn't on the cusp of this very moment, or that we, we, we go about. Do, do we live with that kind of urgency that really Jesus could come back tomorrow, that Jesus could come back tomorrow? And like were we really living our lives that way? Were we really living thinking that the end was near? Are we living on mission with our friends and family and co-workers? Or do we say, oh, no, there's time. Peter's telling us, he's gotten after this already. There's not time. There's not time. This is There's a level of urgency that we're missing here. And so depending, yes, um, on what your theology is, the, the last days mean something. But, um, you yeah, know, we just believe that... Uh, That yes, we are in the last days, but yes, we're just eagerly awaiting Christ's return. And because of that, and because the end is near, he says, therefore, very next thing he says, Peter says, therefore, in light of time being short, in light of eternity being on the cusp, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, I think the obvious connection that you make with this idea of being sober-minded and self-controlled is he's just hanging right back to the, the, the Gentile worldview. Right, he says. You know, they give in to sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties. So, so this idea of sober-mindedness is, is avoid getting drunk, avoid drugs, avoid things that just fill your life. Whatever makes you happy and completely tuned out to what's actually happening in the world around you. But I also think there's another tie here. Peter is making when we when about. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded because notice why? He says, for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers, be sober-minded. For the sake of your prayers, be self-controlled. And so he just goes into this long list of why the world gives into these things and and indulgences and why he's saying, okay, avoid such things because you can't just play with the things of the world. You can't just play around with sin. Well, like like what we're gonna see later um, from Peter is, is that The devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Here's what I know about hunting. The best hunter's bait. You think you can play with sin? We're gonna put it out in front of you. If you don't think it's gonna devour you, I'm telling you, you're being ignorant to that fact, to that reality. You can't play with sin and think that there's not gonna be some devastating reality that comes into play. And here he's saying, be sober mind, be self-controlled. And when you give into those things, when you give into the passions of the world, when you give into the world the, the, the world's worldview, man, it's all about the independence. It's all about yourself. I mean, that was Satan's whole scheme in the garden. Man, God knows that when you eat of that tree, you're not gonna die, but you're just gonna become like him, and then you won't need him anymore. So, so so give into that independence, give into that that way of it's all about me, I. Number one. And so if you can get you on away from dependence on God, guess what He's also gonna get you away from? Prayer. The more and more you, you fool around with sin, the more and more you play with the things of the world. Watch how that dwindles your prayer life. Right? Where I, I don't necessarily need I'm I'm happy or things are going okay, and we can't we can't play with it. We will loosen our dependence on God. Time is short, and there's a necessity to putting on the mind of Christ, not giving into the pleasure of the uh, pleasures of the world, because the world does have an agenda. And that's to rob from you your joy in God. And so instead, above all else, above all else in our text, prayer. Loving one another, practicing hospitality, exercising our spiritual gifts to the glory of God. These are the things that Christians should occupy their lives with. Above all else, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. There's a question we use here. You know, when people come and say, hey, we want to talk about life struggles or marital difficulties or financial hardships or sickness, you know, one of the things, the question we always ask is, what does love require of you? What does love require of you? Because um, that's a great question to begin to say, okay, what do I need to give up? Or what do I need to put on? Or what, what is love asking of you? How do you be a better spouse? How do you be a better friend, a better coworker? Better follower of Jesus. Well, well love is going to have to be the answer, um, and so here we see that love covers a multitude of sins. And so, how what wh- what sins does it cover? Right, there's a multitude of sins that if you put love on, it's going to cover some sins. Well, which ones are they? Well, I think there's actually a great amount that you could see in the scriptures, but. But Peter's already kind of given us the starting list. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. How do you cover sensuality? With love. With love, because you don't view somebody as this inanimate sex object. That's not love. To actually see somebody made in the image of God and that they don't just exist for your pleasure. To actually see a way that I could love, honor, and serve this person, that's how you cover sensuality. Don't begin to look at people that, that they just exist for your good. No. How do you cover drunkenness? Whether an angry drunk or a happy drunk, both messages still speak the same message, that it's all about me. Right? Um, I have yet to meet the person that says, I become a more godly, loving person when I've been getting drunk, right? Well, maybe I'm a happy drunk. Well, my guess is you're feeling happy, but maybe the people around you aren't, right? Well, I become more loose. Yeah, you probably become more loose and say probably really hurtful things, and you think it's funny, right? And so he's saying, but the... If love requires you, you say, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to give into that because it doesn't make me a better spouse. It doesn't make me a better friend. It doesn't make me a better follower of Jesus. It actually tarnishes my witness. You know, Peter here will say, okay, what does love require of you then? Well, to not look at people like they just exist for your pleasure. They don't exist to, to just make you happy. Well, love might require you to, to put down the bottle because it doesn't make you a loving person. Better believer. And so let yourself wrestle with that question this week. What does love require of me in my home, in my workplace, and in the world? In my home, in my workplace, and in the world, what does love require of me? And how do I want my love to be seen, heard, and experienced? What do I have to give up so that I can become more like Jesus? Peter finishes this breath of scripture with sharing how we each have been given a gift. See that in verse verse 10? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Right? So that the gift that you've been given, and you all have been given a gift, God has wired you and equipped you in a certain way that you might be able to serve God. Not just the building needs or something like that, but to actually serve the person right next to you. Maybe the person sitting across the row from you or the person, God's giving you a gift for that. To serve, to love, to honor. Such a way. And, and, and long story short, what, what, what Peter just says is, life is not all about you. That life's not all about you and it's not about just your pleasure and your happiness. That if you had this short little stint of time, the end is near. Reminding about the urgency, how quickly life goes. How would you want to use this time if it's not forever? Certainly, you don't want it to just be self-gratifying. But that you could actually take your life, your suffering, your difficulties, your hardships, your pain, and you would actually allow those, you'd allow your pain to be a microphone and a display of God's grace to the world. How differently would that be? How differently would your life look than the world if that's how you responded to suffering in this short span of time? Long story short, again, life is here and it goes by quick, it's a mist. It's here at breakfast, gone by lunch. Do we want people to see God's goodness in our lives? Our lives aren't meant to be lived for this world, but for eternity. For eternity, for God's glory, forever and ever. I told you we were, we were kind of transitioning into that eternal mindset, forever and ever. We live in this short period of time, forever and ever. Um, I shared last week, how, because of my own story and because of my own, how God brought me into the ministry, I always felt as though my, my ministry would really be centered around people that are hurting and suffering and going through difficulty. And I, I jokingly shared, well, that's, that's everybody. That's everybody. I've yet to meet the person that says, I've never, life was just such a breeze. Um, and, and so I have began jotting things down i don't know if i'll ever officially write the book write the book but i I definitely want to write down on about suffering um, and how god's been good in it and um the, the first i always like to think about when i'm writing i like to pose a question the question that maybe you feel i've felt but the question is will this last forever will your suffering last forever And here's my hope for you. If that's you and you come into this place and you say, hey, time is really short, but it feels like forever. Is this going to last forever? My hope is if you're a believer in Jesus, that yes, that yes, it lasts forever. That it produces a glory, an eternal glory that far outweighs it all. That whatever you're going through in this moment, though it's temporary and short, for you it feels like forever. My hope in prayer is that your suffering gets used in a way that impacts eternity. Not just for yourself, but for those around you. And so, with that, I want to close with that thought that if you're here and you're suffering and you say, Man, it just feels like I'm going through the ring, and it doesn't feel put on the mind of Christ. Put on that mind of Christ that says, Come whatever may, no matter how hard or difficult this gets. I'm pledging my allegiance here. I put my stake in the ground here. It says, come whatever may, I'm in. Why? Because it can produce in you a glory, an eternal glory, that far awaits any minimal suffering that we experience here. Let me pray for us.